JustLiberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me JustLiberty.org JustLiberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. Last week in Highland Park, part of a wealthy enclave encircled by the city of Dallas, surveillance footage captured a man in a white SUV pulling up to a mansion, getting out of his vehicle, and climbing into a $300,000 Ferrari sitting in the driveway. As it happened, not only was the door open, but the keys were in the car along with $2,000 worth of painkillers. Soon thereafter, the gentleman drove away in the Ferrari, leaving his SUV behind. Police found the front of the SUV had been damaged and an open can of beer in the console. So Scott, what do you think of this guy trading an SUV and some beer for a Ferrari and a pile of painkillers? I think if they're honest, our listeners would agree they'd have done the same thing in my (laughs) position. Listen, it's flat out irresponsible to leave your Ferrari unlocked with the keys in it and a boatload of painkillers inside. I, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bait car, really, is what it what it was. That's right. You're entrapped. That's right. Well, if I hadn't taken the Ferrari, what kind of message would that send, <laughs> really? I mean, the, the universe has its ways of punishing ruling class hubris, Mandy, and, and I was just its agent, is really what was going on. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, it's justice is what it was. It is justice. If you own a $300,000 Ferrari <laughs> and leave it unlocked with your drugs laying there in the passenger seat, you kind of deserve what you get. Really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to feel too sorry for the guy. Yeah. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the November 2018 episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson, Policy Director at Just Liberty, here today with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, who's Executive Director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? I have never been better, Scott. How are you? Well, I'm great, but I'm not quite that good. I'm (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. On this reasonably suspicious episode, a state senator wants to ban forensic hypnosis from Texas courtrooms. A museum in Houston tackles justice reform through art. We take a first look at Austin's newly negotiated police union contract. And we parse the recent election results through a Texas justice reform lens. So, Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? The election results. I don't know. Forensic hypnosis is just calling my name, I feel like. (laughs) But but the election was fun. I, 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 I agree. Okay. Our top story is the recent election. Last month, the podcast highlighted the Dallas District Attorney race, featuring excerpts from a debate in which both candidates competed over who was most likely to enact reform. The winner, John Crusoe, ran on a platform of ending mass incarceration. He promised to reduce the number of people Dallas County sends to prison by up to 20% and pledged to produce a written plan to reduce mass incarceration within 90 days of taking office. But that wasn't the only big DA election this November. In San Antonio, Democrat Joe Gonzalez will soon take over for Nico LaHood. Gonzalez eliminated a Republican opponent who, like Faith Johnson in Dallas, ran as a moderate and tacked toward reform in the general election. In Tarrant County, incumbent DA Sharon Wilson survived the so-called blue wave. But in Fort Bend County, Democrats enjoyed a countywide sweep, including Brian Middleton, an African-American Democrat, defeating the Republican heir apparent to retiring DA John Healy. So, Scott, what stood out to you from the DA races this cycle? Well, the the big news was clearly the John Crusoe faith Johnson race. And 
the amazing view of two district attorney candidates in, in a major Texas city arguing over who would be the most reform minded, who would be the most likely to prosecute wayward police officers, who would be the most likely to reduce incarceration was really just eye popping. I'd never seen anything quite like that before. I do think that the Joe Gonzalez race in Bear County may be sort of a sleeper in terms of really interesting places to watch. That wasn't as high profile a race. And mm-hmm. because the race was really decided in the primary when he beat Nico LaHood, uh, that didn't get the same sort of national attention as the Dallas race did. But uh, folks who I know who have spoken extensively with Gonzalez say that he's more progressive than one might expect and that, that he may turn out to be even more progressive than Crusoe when we're all said and done. All this is projection, you know, everything is hopeful on the front end of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. of all this. I mean, what's exciting about Gonzalez, though, too, is that he's in a solidly blue metropolitan area that has been that way for a long time. So if he's looking to create policies that are reform driven, he'll have a lot of institutional ref- like support right. at the county level. Same goes for John Crusoe, really. I mean, Dallas is, is a pretty blue county at this point. And so um, he does have some leeway to go ahead and try and do some reforms. You know, the, the other interesting thing is the Fort Bend County race. That really turned much more on the better O'Rourke turnout and, and all Democrats in Fort Bend County won. And so I'm not sure we can say whether voters were really saying anything about a reform agenda or not. But that's another instance where there's new leadership and a real opportunity for somebody to chart a new path in. In, in a county that has had one of the most conservative exactly. DAs in the state. So that, that could be huge reform there. I mean, if for listeners will probably remember that John Healy was the DA that sat on Brady material for extended periods of time and or, or at times didn't disclose it, didn't disclose it to the defense on materiality grounds. So changing who's in charge and giving new leadership to that organization is incredible. And also they have a high incarceration rate. Right. So that's potentially a very, very big change, even if it didn't play out on these issues in the way it did in Dallas. As polling predicted, Republicans swept all the statewide seats from U.S. Senator on down to all the Supreme Court and Court of Criminal Appeals races. But an underexamined outcome from this election cycle was the near sweep of intermediate Texas appellate courts, where Democrats won 30 of 32 contested seats. Of those, 19 were seats held by Republicans. That leaves Democrats the majority in seven of 14 appellate courts, including in Dallas, Houston, and Austin, with more vulnerable GOP-held slots up in 2020. So, Mandy, if the GOP still controls all the top appellate courts, how important are these intermediate court victories? And are these partisan labels meaningful given the actual day-to-day job that faces these lawyers once they're on the bench? Well, these intermediary courts are extremely important. They set the precedent for their judicial region until they're overturned by the Court of Criminal Appeals. And as everyone, or as as a lot of our listeners know, it's rare that the Court of Criminal Appeals is going to pick up an issue unless it's, you know, raised by the state prosecuting attorney's office. Right. Most petitions to the Court of Criminal Appeals are denied. Yeah. Unless you're the state prosecuting attorney. Then you get deference. 
in the in the meantime, these courts are the ones that control those issues, and they often deal with novel legal issues on a regular basis. So it's quite important. And um, something that you've brought up in our talking about these issues is that it does hold, you know, implications for you know redistricting. Right. Potentially, the Texas Supreme Court eventually gets all these cases, but it's absolutely the case. The third court of appeals, where the Democrats just took over, sees all these cases when when they come up through the legal process. Last election story, in Harris County, Democrats completed a total sweep of all countywide races, including all 59 contested judicial seats and the election of a new 27-year-old county judge, Lena Hidalgo, whose research specialty at Harvard Law was children of incarcerated parents. So Scott, what does this partisan shift mean for Harris County from a criminal justice perspective? This really could have huge implications. Harris County is the largest county in the state, obviously, but historically it has sent a disproportionate number of people to prison, sent a disproportionate number of people to death row, and really has been sort of the epicenter of incarceration in Texas, where Texas is more or less the epicenter of mass incarceration <laughs> on the planet. Yeah. So, so this is a big shift. It's amazing to have a county judge elected who's an ardent criminal justice reformer and with Rodney Ellis there on the on the commissioner's court with mm-hmm. her. I think that we can look forward to some really important policy changes moving forward. Mm-hmm. The other big thing about this is that among the 59 judges that were ousted were all of the misdemeanor court judges who were opposing bail reform. Mm. So the folks who are actually litigating against reform are, have all been ousted. And the, for the most part, the judges replacing them all support bail reform. And so I think we're going to see big changes in Harris County. And the change is so dramatic, I think it's hard to predict where it'll start or what we'll see first. But, but I'm rather excited about this and especially excited about bail reform. I feel like that... They've spent $8 million mm-hmm. fighting that, and it's been years and years. And wow, for that opposition to just evaporate overnight is awesome. I know. It's really exciting. And, and just all of the issues that you flagged, I mean, those are the, those affect every point in a criminal case, really, from the moment of arrest all the way through disposition, and even sometimes after that. So it's exciting to see what will come next. A wall turned sideways is a bridge, according to an artist featured in an exhibit currently showing at the Contemporary Art Museum of Houston, running through January 6th. Titled Walls Turned Sideways, Artists Confront the Justice System, the exhibit is free to the public and includes a thought-provoking collection in a variety of media that's highly critical of all aspects of the modern justice system. As someone who's been thinking deeply about justice issues for going on a quarter century, I've never seen anything quite like it. Mandy, what stood out to you from this collection? I guess well, one of the big things that was exciting to see was some graphs that an artist produced looking at the relationship between 
prisons and museum growth. And sort of the thesis there was that, you know, mass incarceration has sort of ballooned over over the same period that we've seen a rise in, in income inequality. Right, as well as a rise in museums and a rise in the value of high-end art. Which it was all on the same, same graph. All on the it's same graph. And, and so part of her thesis was, you know, that museums, um, patronage of museums is an index in a lot of ways of extreme wealth. Right. And that you, you sort of, you know, someone's paying for this art. And just the stuff and, in museums. <laughs> and the stuff in museums in a lot of different ways. And so it was it was really interesting. I think part of the write up didn't not all of it held water, though, because she was they were talking about, you know, people being incarcerated for crimes of poverty. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case. You know, there's just isn't enough information. But we are seeing crime in general is a product of decreased in opportunity. And that's certainly the case that I, I agree. That was probably a bit of a stretch. But I did think that the broader issue she raised of museums are places that hold surplus wealth Mm -hmm. and prisons are places that hold surplus labor Mm. and sort of making that parallel that as you see greater and greater income disparity, you have greater surplus labor that we now house in the prisons. You have greater surplus wealth that you now house in the museums. I thought that was a fascinating way to think about that. I certainly had never considered it before. And while there's probably some nuances that it misses, Mm -hmm. it also captures something that most of us never think about in precisely that way. And what's art for, if not to do exactly that? So, you know, one one of the ones that I thought was uh, really a high impact for me anyway, was one that we talked about before about, An artist in Indianapolis had created participation trophies (laughs) for all of the police officers who had shot someone in Indianapolis over a period of of years. This person had gone back and gotten the name of every officer and gone to some cheesy trophy shop and Mm -hmm. had trophies made for all of them. And they were just participation awards. (laughs) You know, one of them was a couple dancing. One of them was was a bowler, you know, just just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh and, yeah and they all for your participation in the shooting death of you know so and so and all of them there you know on the trophy shelf together the the irony was just so thick it just was kind of an amazing thing and of course seeing each knowing each one represents a dead person mm-hmm. and it was a it was a very stunning display and a very interesting way to 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 think about that yeah, no. And there there was a lot of, I mean, this was a really dense exhibit, so it's hard. We're not going to be able to get into all of it, but the creativity on a lot of these artists was extraordinarily impressive. Right, right. Well, and some of it was, was very hard hitting in ways that, you know, you wonder, is it even art or advocacy, I have to say. I, there, there was one where I thought this was, again, just a very hard hitting set of imagery where they had the same inmate at the Mohawk Correctional Facility. Is that New York? Um, I I think so. At at any rate, uh, the same inmate over time with visits from his entire family. And and it's his wife and his daughter and and, uh, a young infant son. And then Mm -hmm. the the daughter's growing up and the son's growing up and the wife changes a lot over time, her hairdo or her clothing styles. Mm -hmm. But the inmate 
has the same inmate garb, the same <laughs> face. You can always recognize him, even if you can't. Always, you're looking, is it the same woman? Is it the same child? Well, it is, but he's the constant throughout all these pictures, and there's dozens and dozens of them in a row. Mm. And just a very high-impact piece, and it's so simple, and it has artistic impact, but it's also just all the photos from Visitation Day. Yeah. There were several like that. There was one from uh, Texas Death Row where they had a photo of all of David Lee Powell's oh. last effects boxed up. And then on the wall, they had the index of contents from each of the boxes, that, which were numbered there in the photo. And it included everything from just his toiletry items and and stuff everyone would have to all the books that were in his possession. You saw all the titles of the books he was reading, some of which were from deep philosophy to, to just trashy novels you read for fun. And just a very, I, I went to visit it with a friend who was uh, visiting from Germany, mm-hmm. and she found that just transfixing, uh, reading through the contents of, of his last effects. And, and again, a very high-impact presentation. Yeah, and so for those of our listeners who don't know, David Lee Powell was the first person who was executed in Texas after the death penalty was reinstated in the 1970s. So a very significant choice of 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 who to portray that way. Yeah, no, because obviously there's there's now hundreds you could portray that way. Eleven months ago, the Austin City Council rejected a contract with the local police union because community leaders led by the Austin Justice Coalition believed it did not allow for sufficient oversight of police. Longtime listeners may recall this podcast featured interviews with activists Sam Sinyangwe and Suki McMahon, union negotiator Ron Delord, and others during that long and bitter local fight. Earlier this month, police accountability advocates signed off on a new contract and police oversight system in Austin, ending the nearly year-long standoff. In December, Scott will sit down with lead union negotiator Ron Delord and Chaz Moore of the Austin Justice Coalition to talk about the politics of what happened. But for now, let's focus on the details of the new policy. Scott's wife, Kathy Mitchell, was deeply involved in Austin Justice Coalition's push to improve police oversight in the capital city. He asked her to update everyone on exactly what happened. So, Kathy, tell us what was accomplished as a result of this recent fight. Essentially, Austin now has civilian oversight of the police force outside of the police contract. Now, not everything is outside the contract. In order for civilians to review critical incidents, they had to have access to what's called the G-file, which is the deep, dark, secret file of police misconduct that's maintained at the department. It's part of the state civil service code that 70 different municipal police departments have opted into. But most departments don't have that. That's correct. And that does help me tell you about some of what we got in the contract. In order for that civilian oversight system to work better than the civilian oversight system we had in the past, we got more transparency into that G file. So when a person files a complaint now, unlike under the old contract, 
They will get to know more about the complaint as it goes through the process. That complainant will get a closeout hearing and they will receive something in writing that says what the findings were and what the, mis- what the outcome was for the police officer, as long as there was any kind of outcome for that officer. So if that officer was disciplined, a complainant can know about it and that information will become public. So in addition to the changes in the contract, there was also a new ordinance passed that creates a new oversight system for the city. Tell us what's in that. So that is the main thing I was talking about when I said we created civilian oversight outside the contract. So there was an ordinance and it allowed a panel to be created It also authorizes the Office of Police Oversight to review cases, accept complaints, uh, and probably most importantly, lead a public dialogue about the findings that occur in the course of civilian oversight and the changes, the systemic changes that might be needed to fix problems for everyone and not just for that one person. So y'all had asked for a whole long list of things, and you just got a few of them. Tell us, what didn't you get? What were some of the reforms that you wanted that weren't accomplished through this process? Well, there's something called the 180-day rule, and it is in the civil service state law, and it was also in the old contract and is still in the new contract. The 180-day rule essentially means that if you file a complaint after 180 days have passed since the incident, the officer cannot be disciplined. Now, we did get some relief uh, for more serious misconduct that is arguably uh, criminal conduct. And as we know in Texas, a lot of conduct is arguably criminal conduct. The time, the 180-day clock, doesn't start ticking until a, an assistant chief level supervisor knows about the incident. So that means that things can no longer be buried at the bottom of the super chain of supervisors. That said, uh, there are still a lot of cases I think we're going to find that uh, get blocked by the 180-day rule, and we fully intend to keep talking about that and bring it up again in four years. And if I'm not mistaken, police officers still get to see the the case against them before they have to sit down and be interviewed. Is that correct? They they get to receive all the evidence against them, see it with their lawyers before they're required to answer any questions when there's a bad incident. Well, we did improve on that a little bit. Thanks to the old contract expiring and Austin going under civil service for almost a year, the city got used to the civil service standard on that, which is narrower. Officers get to see their own evidence, but not all the evidence. So I think that the civil service standard should be the floor. Obviously, you wouldn't let any other kind of suspect see evidence against them before asking them for a statement. This is simply not credible investigative investigation practice. Uh, But for now, I think we feel good that we have improved the system over what it was before the old contract expired. And last but not least, y'all saved the citizens of Austin a lot of money. The contract they had negotiated last year was going to cost an additional $80 million plus dollars, and now it's down to 40-some-odd million is the new number. So uh, tell us how that was achieved and what happens with all this extra money you freed up. 
Yeah, well, I think that in the course of the dialogue about oversight, the council started to become comfortable with the idea that oversight isn't a thing that you have to pay extraordinary special wages for, that it's something that should come with the job. And in the course of this negotiation, a number of questionable kinds of stipends and money offers basically just went off the table. Council council didn't like it the first time around and clearly weren't going to go for it the second time. So the patrol stipend, which was a special payment offered to patrol officers for patrolling, went away. There had been an offer of... Uh, a one-time signing bonus for every officer just for voting for the contract last time, uh, that went away. There were small negotiations around things like court time where they get, under the old contract, they got uh, four hours at time and a half for the first hour of showing up in court. That was negotiated heavily and didn't come down a lot, but it did come down to three hours of time and a half. Each of those things, every piece of that kind of firm no on the part of the city helped us get to more value at lower cost. Hi, this is Amanda Marzuzo. I'm the executive director of the Texas Defender Service. Please join us for our annual luncheon on December 4th. Tickets to the event, which include valet parking, can be purchased on our website, texasdefender.org. The Texas Defender Service is the premier capital defense organization in Texas. Our event will feature the charismatic and engaging Stephen Bright, who has argued and won several capital cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and is a hero to defense attorneys everywhere. Next up, a segment we call Forensic Focus, in which we discuss issues related to forensic science, crime labs, and efforts to apply modern science to decades-old forensic methods. This month, we're updating a topic we've been discussing on the podcast since last November. State Senator Juan Chuy Hinojosa, a veteran Democrat and criminal defense attorney whose district runs from Corpus Christi to the Rio Grande Valley, has filed SB 130 to ban hypnosis-induced testimony in Texas courtrooms. Mandy, why is this bill necessary and what are its chances? This bill is necessary because it's still being used. We're still seeing in cases in... You know, it's hard to know why or how, but, you know, you could make the argument that it's in cases where, you know, a witness is unsure of what they saw or who they saw do it. If they were sure, no one would need to hypnotize them. (laughs) Okay, exactly. So, yes. And so those are those are cases where the evidence is particularly weak. And so, you know, using hypnosis, which has been there are a lot of ways to talk about it, but at a minimum, it it raises questions about whether it undermines the integrity of someone's recollection rather than reinforces it. And if it's being used and it is creating further issues, it's something that requires a bill to stop. Yeah, I, th- I think it's more than just a question about the integrity. I think that, that at this point, if you're using 
hypnosis and your investigations, it's pretty much of a joke. I mean, why not? Why not just have a tarot card reading and, and do that? It's or, about at that level. I recently purchased a copy of the textbook mm-hmm. that the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement requires for forensic hypnosis mm-hmm. classes, and it is an amazing piece of work. So first off, it, it has this sort of weird Freudian basis where it tells us that one-eighth of the brain is the conscious mind and seven-eighths <laughs> of the brain are the subconscious mind and and the task of the hypnotist is to delve into the subconscious mind. Well, modern brain science has told us this is all just a bunch of hokum. Yeah. The, the, the book advocates that they try and get uh, witnesses to engage in automatic writing as part. Well, this is like it's, paranormal no, garbage. No, it, yeah, it doesn't it's make foolishness they 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 advocate getting you to go into age regression so you you know i guess for childhood trauma or whatever well again this is how is that relevant wait what age regression where they like hypnotize you and and try and get you to think back oh pretend you're you're a child and then relive it in that in that So, so they're actually advocating that a hypnotist for purposes of an eyewitness identification engage in a series of encounters with an individual? Uh, Well, no, no. Age aggression, meaning that they're trying to get the person to regress to a prior age in their subconscious somehow, right? Because we all make great decisions. I don't know. I'm sorry. It's it's all just, it's, it's, it's bizarro world. It's taking all (laughs) of this sort of flaky fringe pseudo paranormal pseudoscience and pretending that it's an investigative technique. And, and just over and over, there's these elements that show you everything throughout that textbook nearly seems like it's almost trying to tell you you shouldn't be using this for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So in the curriculum for the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement on Hypnosis, there's a requirement that in order to get a certification, you have to demonstrate your proficiency at implanting post-hypnotic suggestions on your subject. Well, why in the world does a police detective need to <laughs> implant memories in a witness? Yeah, yeah. Why would you require them to be trained on that to get their certification? This is insanity. Yeah. And, and it is junk science, and, and it should be gone. The, the only thing I'd add to Chewy Hinojosa's bill, and I, I think it's a great idea, and I'm glad they're doing it, is... It's just a very simple one-liner that says you can't use this in the courtroom. We have this entire certification program that's in statute at the Commission on Law Enforcement. They should delete all that, too. There's no way to fix it. There's no scientific basis for hypnosis. Eliminating the certification certification itself. Exactly. But you're speaking just about forensic hypnosis. That's right. That's right. There's no way to fix that certification. There's no scientific version of, of forensic hypnosis. It's all hokum. Yeah, but if it's inadmissible, they'll stop using it. They'll I've, end soon enough. That's yeah. Right. And in terms of the second piece of your question, what are the likelihoods of passage? I mean, it's always hard to pass a bill, right? You know, right. the prospects of success are about one in five. But in this case, you were dealing with a bill that is really hard to argue against. It really is, and. There's so few people using it 
even anymore. There's only two agencies that still have a significant number of people using it, the Department of Public Safety and the Harris County Sheriff's Office. And otherwise, there's hardly any left. So I do feel like there's there's very good chances for it. And we'll see. Thank you, Chewy Hinojosa, for, for, for authoring the bill. Yeah, thank you. In our penultimate segment, let's play a quick game of fill-in-the-blank in which Mandy and I suggest how to complete a statement about a recent criminal justice reform story. Let's start with a story out of Austin. A recent podcast by the National Center for Investigative Reporting and a group called PRX interviewed a whistleblower from the Austin Police Department, a former sergeant who was in charge of the agency's sex crimes unit. She alleged she was removed from her position because she refused to change the case status for hundreds of rape cases from unresolved to cleared a move that she believed wasn't justified. She was removed from the position, and her replacement changed the definitions for cleared cases, significantly bumping up the numbers. Austin Police Chief Brian Manley chalked the episode up to a difference of opinion about the data. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. Austin PD's clearance rate for rape is... Fiction. Fiction. Based on this story by the Center for Investigative Reporting, it's very clear that they have been reclassifying a lot of rape cases as closed when in fact they could make an arrest and didn't. Right. And when the victim was willing to testify in at least the case that they highlighted in the story. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in the broadcast on KUT, I think one of the reporters from the story said that they didn't get enough information to really drill into all of the cases the way they should. But where there's smoke, there's fire in this instance. If you are reclassifying, you know, upwards of 1,500 rape cases in in a city, that is a pattern. Right. Of behavior. And without us replaying everything that they did on the podcast, because it was an excellent, um, excellent report, there's a disconnect in Chief Manley's responses that really just hasn't been resolved. I had written about this issue on the blog, and afterwards, Chief mm-hmm. Manley came up to me. Um, really? he, he did, after the, the Austin police contract vote. And he very, very earnestly wanted to you know, explain to me why they'd done what they did. But he kept falling into the same sort of gaps and flaws in, in his argument that he did on the, on the podcast. He would have all these sort of secondary sources. Oh, well, my supervisors assure me, or I told them to audit a batch of cases in CFX or whatever. Well, this woman was describing the sergeant who was the head of the sex crimes unit was describing very specific cases that she was being pressured about Mm -hmm. and very specific issues that she was being told to ignore. And he's not addressing this at that level of detail. Mm -hmm. And it makes her come off as very credible because she has specifics. And it makes him come off as evasive because he doesn't. And I certainly hope that he's right. I hope that that about the definition because it'd be terrible to think that, you know, nearly 1,500 women's cases were reported as solved but weren't really and Mm -hmm. that but weren't pursued that's right that somehow that's a systematic thing that we're doing so i hope he's correct but you judge credibility in part based on who can talk with specificity about the issue and knows details and both on that podcast and when he talked to me afterward he needed more details to be credible in the face of what was reported his responses are simply not good enough right now yeah well hopefully we'll get more information later next one 
When debtors prison reform legislation passed the Texas legislature in 2017, encouraging local governments to waive more fines and allow more community service, municipal judges raised cane, insisting that revenue from traffic tickets would plunge as a result. Instead, Revenue from Class C misdemeanor tickets increased by 7%, according to data reported by the state's Office of Court Administration. This year, both political party platforms endorsed ending arrests for unpaid Class C misdemeanor debt using commercial collections instead of jail in the event of non-payment. So Scott, fill in the blank. Jailing people for traffic ticket debt is... Utterly counterproductive. To me, it was totally predictable that the reforms we had in 2017 would not reduce collections Mm -hmm. because we were never going to collect from the people that they were trying to squeeze money out of anyway. You cannot get blood from a stone. Mm -hmm. And that's really what all this has, has been about. And so it doesn't surprise me that collections went up. I know it surprises a lot of our municipal judges around the state because they were claiming that the sky would fall, that revenue would plunge, the cities would go bankrupt. Yeah, whenever we're talking about not collecting money from someone who can't afford it, you really have to wonder how that's really going to affect our bottom line. That's right. It didn't really make sense even when they were saying it. And I think we're going to see the same types of concerns over Chairman James White's suggestion this uh, uh, this go round to stop arresting for non-payment of classy misdemeanor traffic ticket debt. But again, in reality, it's just not a thing in states mm-hmm. like Arizona, where they have civil infractions for traffic instead of criminal offenses like we do here. Their rate of collections is essentially similar. It's mm-hmm. not something where the form of civil versus criminal, you know, how are we going to punish you? That's not what making what's making people pay. They're not they're not paying because they can't pay. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that oh they're they're evil people. We have to punish them if they don't do it. Yeah, no, it it doesn't make any sense. I, I was going to say that it's just a massive civil rights violation. I mean, it's. It, the Constitution has said that you shouldn't be incarcerating people because of their income status, and that's what we're doing. And here I was sure you were going to say it was penny-wise and pound-foolish. I'm trying to, you know, mix it up lately, Scott. All right. <laughs> well, it's it's both those things. But it's it, both a massive violation and, and penny-wise wise and pound-foolish. Pound foolish. Yeah, no, and you're right. Like, and, and But I think you said it, too. It's counterproductive that it costs the state much more money and counties much more money to incarcerate someone for not paying money. It's just it's just throwing money into a hole. Right. It really is. And half a million people in Texas last year sat out their traffic fines in jail. That makes. Yeah. And all that did is cost county taxpayers money. That's an amazing number. Half a million people. There's only 16 million people with a driver's license. Well, what at 50, you know, what the average, you know, night in in custody is around $50. Right. And that's a conservative estimate. Well, your first day there is more around uh, like 200 because of all the intake costs. Okay. So let's say a minimum of 200 times half a million but that's you know a hundred million dollars right there that's right that's right i I think we had estimated that if the average length of stay of course some will stay just a day some might stay many to to sit out their traffic fines if the average average length of stay was two days that's 2500 bed years (laughs) 
of incarceration for for traffic tickets. That's a lot of people sitting a lot of time in jail yeah. at, at that volume. And that's, you know, it, and just to beat a dead horse, it just makes it even more surprising that county officials would oppose this because we're, we're talking about significant savings on right. their end. They're afraid of losing their money, but it's a it's an unwarranted fear. Yeah, they're going to save money. Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. First up, President Trump has endorsed the First Step Act, which is the first federal reform bill involving sentencing or prisons in eight years. But Majority Leader Mitch McConnell now says he may renege on his promise to vote for the legislation during the lame duck session, putting the issue off until the next Congress. Scott, how important is this bill and will, will it get a vote soon? I think there's a, a sense among the advocates I've talked to out of D.C. that if they don't get a vote pretty soon, they're worried this thing may die on the vine, that mm-hmm. um, uh, some of the new Republicans coming in may oppose it, some of the new Democrats coming in may want more, and that right now they know they have the votes in the Senate, and if they can get the majority lead to bring it up, they will. I will say um, uh, what we're hearing is that Ted Cruz is one of those who's leaning no. Senator Cornyn, um, to his credit, is uh, one of the sponsors of the legislation. Mm. Um, But Ted Cruz is one of those who were trying to flip. So if you want to call his offices and let him know he needs to vote for this, now is an excellent time to do so. All right. In testimony earlier this year to the Texas House Corrections Committee, The Legislative Budget Board revealed that it has no idea which inmates in Texas prisons are parents of minor children, so there's no way to target those children for supportive services while their parents are inside. House Corrections Committee Chairman James White has pledged to file legislation this year to begin tracking these youth. Mandy, why is this important? Because it has implications for the welfare of untold numbers of minors. It's the same reason why separating families at the border is a big deal. It's the same thing. Well, there's there's really even a crime prevention element, too. I mean, children of incarcerated parents are very likely to commit crimes later on themselves. And so the more support and help you can give for them. Yeah. No, this is a new, sorry, I'm being flippant. But yes, it's an extremely vulnerable population that we need to be aware of and to make sure that we're providing with services and access to their parents. I think that one reason why this is really important is to ensure that they're able to maintain a relationship while their parents are on the inside. That's a great point. Finally, for many years when he was at the Austin Statesman, Mike Ward was the primary journalist in Texas covering the prison system. He was the only reporter who went to their board meetings and frankly was the only source in Texas mainstream media for prison-related news. But after he left the Statesman to become Austin Bureau at the Houston Chronicle, Ward was caught making up quotes and stories. A review of his work identified 122 people quoted in 72 stories who could not be located. Scott, you wrote a blog that you weren't surprised by these revelations. I have to say I really wasn't. Mike Ward, out of all, we have a lot of excellent, excellent journalists in this state, and Mike Ward was never one of them. Mike, <laughs> was, Mike was a sycophant to power throughout his journalistic career. He was not someone who was really interested in covering the stories related to the Texas prison system. He was interested in having an in with power and being their mm-hmm. voice. 
And uh, one of the most amazing things about this is that it's not just that he was making up quotes and that that's this journalistic violation. He just wasn't covering the news. So there's a woman named Carrie Blakinger, who we've mentioned on the podcast several times, who after Mike um, left that beat, she became the primary reporter who's really covering the Texas prison system. And from the moment that she took over that beat, it was as though someone had turned on a light in a dark room. Mm. And all of a sudden, she has been breaking story after major story after major story. We've talked probably about more than a dozen of them on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Prisoners not getting dentures. Prisoners having disciplinary cases fabricated against them by guards. People have been indicted because of her reporting. And all these were stories that were just sort of laying around that beat and no one had been covering for years. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's Mike's biggest failing. The, the making up the quotes, yes, that's reprehensible. But equally reprehensible was frankly covering this beat in such a one-sided way for so many years that we really had no insight into what's going on in the prison system. We're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson from Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with another episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. And just a reminder, everyone, Texas Defender Service is holding its annual luncheon on December 4th in Houston. I really hope to see all of y'all there. Everyone show up if you can. It'll be a great event.